world uh, that is to act as leaven and salt and light, as the Gospels record, and to advance his claims and to declare his will and to bring about making the, the nations of the world disciples of Jesus Christ. So there is the claim of the kingdom and the reality of his authority over all things, but there is within the world a church that Jesus Christ has instituted, which is working through the means of grace, the gospel, prayer, and the partnership of the Holy Spirit, as the scriptures describe it, to see men and women of this world embrace the Lord Jesus and willingly accept that authority in their lives as his Lord, even as they receive the forgiveness of their sins uh, through his saving work. And so, as we, as we saw, the kingdom is extensive. Uh, there is this government in the church that is distinct, though. The civil magistrate is himself appointed, as we saw in the chapter on the civil magistrate, and if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back and read that chapter, possibly listen to those lessons that the civil magistrate in Romans 13, for, for example, is described as a minister of God appointed by him that all authority is from God. And he also answers to the Lord Jesus. But to the point of the confession, this first paragraph is emphasizing that the government of the church is not wielded by the civil magistrate in any way. Uh, she does not depend upon the permission of the civil government wherever she may be uh, for existence, and she is not governed through the uh, civil government as uh, the outward affairs of political life may be. Now, if we go on to the second paragraph, here's where we come more into the subject of the chapter, which has to do with the function of that government in maintaining the membership of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with order and godliness. And this second paragraph we read, to these officers, that is to this church government, these church officers, to these officers the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. Now, that's a lot of text. We see in Matthew chapter 16 this reference to the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the confession using this scriptural biblical language if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> of course, the uh, prerequisite for anyone to serve as an officer in the church, and this is particularly focused upon the elders of the church and the government of the church, but in Matthew 16, it is reserved until, and it only follows, the acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is. That's the significance of what we're about to read in terms of Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, as he's named here. It's not that he is unique in this. Rather, he is the example. This is the pattern that the Lord Jesus provides, as we'll see in Matthew 18. But up in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. <clears throat> he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, as, we're, as we saw last week, as we'll continually see in looking at the government of the church, uh, that authority flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king and the head of the church. And so it, it, it might be tempting just to snatch that phrase um, out, as uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, does, and miss <clears throat> the significance of the context for this. Uh, that Peter here is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we're about to turn to Matthew 18, and we're going to see that this wasn't anything unique to Peter. All of these disciples are going to be addressed with the same commission. But what, what is important here is recognizing that he could not have those keys, he could not wield those keys apart from recognizing who Jesus Christ is. That, that is the fundamental prerequisite for anyone to serve as an officer, an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus, for one to actually have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it's not an individual exercise, but in the context of government by a plurality of elders. But you cannot act in the name of the Lord Jesus in this way. You cannot wield or use the keys of the kingdom of heaven apart from recognizing that he is the son of the living God, that you are acting as his servant, and thus you must be carrying out his will as he is revealed in Scripture. That is the, the full significance there of Matthew 16. Now, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 18, we see this same teaching in, in the matter of resolving conflict between brothers. And here we have in Matthew 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, of course, there are a lot of uh, aspects of this situation that are assumed and not explicitly stated. It, it does say in the first phrase, though, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault. In other words, we're not speaking about just a, a matter of personal disagreement that, you know, well, I, I have a disagreement with you about this matter that Scripture doesn't uh, condemn or, or approve or require. No, this is a matter of sin. It's a matter of violating God's will. And so if your brother has sinned against you, you're to seek reconciliation. Uh, you're to seek his restoration. And that's the emphasis throughout this passage is certainly has an implication for the relationship between you and this brother. But the primary relationship that's being sought and in restoration would be that between this one who has sinned and the Lord God. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That is, he, he confesses that sin. He, he repents of that sin, and all is restored through the work of the Lord Jesus. But if he does not listen, like, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established. In other words, it's serious. Sin is serious. When there is sin committed and it is being stubbornly held to, as we saw in some of those passages even last week, it does require to be addressed. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And notice, 
the consequences if this isn't successful is so, it's far more serious than that your relationship with that individual has been damaged or destroyed. It actually is going to involve his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his church. And that's where we see the direction of this in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it's, it's designed, the, the whole intent and purpose of this is his repentance. And it's not to be understood as um, humiliating him in some public gathering of the church and standing up and making an announcement. But it is rather a reference to what we see in 1 Corinthians 6 of going to the elders of the church and having them come and, and join in seeking the face of the Lord Jesus and opening the scriptures and confirming what had happened and calling whoever has sinned to repentance that there might be restoration in the body of Christ. But if he refuses, even in response to that step, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if there is someone who's a professing believer, a brother, as they're described in verse 15, who is persistent and stubborn in holding on to sin despite there being no question about what has happened. It's been confirmed by multiple witnesses. And it's not an issue of, of questioning whether it happened, but rather he is refusing in verse 17 to listen to them. Now, what is, what is that presupposing? What, what is, as, as 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll look at, what is, that, um, what is the job of the elders in this case? It is to take God's word and to speak God's word, pointing people to God's word in that situation. Now, here is what God says about this. And so that is what he's refusing to listen to. These elders have no place to just come and share their personal opinions about a matter. Their job is to take God's word. Again, the Lord Jesus alone is the king and head of the church. His will alone carries weight and authority. He's the one we must obey. And so again, when we think of the officers of the church, especially the elders in view here, we're not submitting as, as the people of God to a man or to these few men. But we truly are submitting to the Lord Jesus because they are supposed to, and their only legitimate authority is found in them pointing us, reading to us, applying faithfully the scriptures, which is the will of the king and the head of the church. And so at that point, as we're going to read uh, elsewhere, when Jesus said, uh, as the Father sent me, so I send you, um, whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. That is where the, the force and the weight of that commission is found. Again, it's not to glorify the opinions of men as though just because you're in an office in the church, just because you happen to be an elder of the church, your personal opinion is, is what carries weight. No, it is the Father's word that the Lord Jesus declares, and it is the word of God that his servants in the church are to declare. And so that is why in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, this assuming that they are being faithful to their commission, he's refusing to listen to the word of God. He's refusing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why even though this might have begun in verse 15 as a very small-seeming issue, the issue has become, by this point, a refusal to submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks in the Holy Scriptures. And so if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so what is that has happened in verse 17. Well, if he has refused 
to listen even to the church. That is, the very plain uh, presentation of the Word of God, which would call whatever it was his fault had been, plainly sin, and he refuses to repent. Then they are to put him outside the fellowship of the church. And that's what this reference is. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That there is a correlation between the faithful acts of the officers of the church and the church as a whole in seeking to listen to and follow the voice of the Lord Jesus when one of her members refuses, begins to become stubborn in his rebellion against the Lord Jesus, we all have sin. But the issue becomes a refusal to repent of sin, even despite the very plain opening of the light of truth to it. Well, then, that individual is no longer able to call themselves a believer in Jesus and a child of God and a member in the fellowship of the people of God because they have rejected the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ in the word of God. Now, that process that officers are supposed to follow and their their faithful duty to apply the scriptures to these situations, has that always happened? And the answer would be an obvious no, sadly, There have been many cases when the officers of the church have forgotten their responsibility and commission and have, instead of applying the word of God, have truly invaded against an individual with their own thoughts rather than the the thoughts of God. And so what is the binding nature or the authority of that? Again, it is assuming that this has faithfully been done. When Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, when an individual is refusing to confess their sin as sin or refusing to turn away from that sin as sin, then the officers of the church are to recognize you are still in the bondage of iniquity, as Peter did with Simon. You're still bound to the power and the guilt of your sin because you're refusing to repent of it. You're refusing the delivering power of the Lord Jesus over this sin in your life. You're still bound by this sin. And what does that mean? Is it just words spoken? Well, no, Jesus says that when this has been faithfully done, when it is God's word that's been brought to bear, then that is a reflection of the reality as God views the situation. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That the Lord Jesus honors with his own action the faithful actions of his church in these matters. Again, I say to you in verse 19, if two of you agree on anything, or agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And now let's look at John, John chapter 20. And this is that passage we just referenced. After the uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus, before his ascension, in verse 19 of John 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now again, it, we would do grave injustice to the scriptures and, and depart from the truth by uh, a, 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 in an extreme way. If we divorce that statement from the faithful application of the word of God. These disciples are here commissioned. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're being sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what have they been sent out to do? Well, we, we read it in the, in the Great Commission. They have been sent out to proclaim the gospel to the nations of the world and to proclaim that God is forgiving the sins of those who flee to His Son and take refuge in Him and look to Him by faith that they might be saved. And so it is by the, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is their function as representatives of Jesus Christ. They can't, apart from the work of Christ, forgive anyone's sins. And they can't withhold the forgiveness that God offers in His Word of anyone who has come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so this isn't as though it's some independent authority apart from the promises of the gospel. But it is as they are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. They are as God's ambassadors, as Paul describes the apostles. They are declaring the offer of forgiveness and even equipped to assure the people who respond by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that their sins are forgiven. And Jesus Christ here in verse 23 is stating that God will always stand true to His Word, that the promises of God's Word will always be honored that everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness will be forgiven. And that is the, the place where they can have this assurance that uh, they can, as he says here in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Well, as they're proclaiming the gospel, they're offering God's forgiveness through his Son. And, and for all who respond by faith in Jesus Christ, they can declare your sins are forgiven by God through the work of Jesus Christ. And for everyone who is rejecting the gospel, they can warn them. And it's not just empty words. These are words that God will stand behind. If you're rejecting His Son, if you're rejecting the offer of the gospel, if you are walking against Him, then I can promise you, your sins are not forgiven. And God will honor those words. That's the significance of verse 23. It's not to create uh, these miniature tyrants in the church as though they have some authority independent from the Word of God. No. Let's look then at 2 Corinthians chapter... 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Now, we referenced 1 Corinthians chapter 5 last week. Now, this is the next, the following letter to the church. The 1 Corinthians chapter 5 situation, of course, was the man who had taken his father's wife, his stepmother, and was living with her in sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul uh, strongly condemned this uh, as bringing great dishonor upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And he called the church there to acknowledge what Jesus Christ would view this and that they should put him outside the church, that uh, he might be brought to his senses, that he cannot be at peace with God and in joyful fellowship with His people and rejecting all of the standards of morality that the Lord Jesus Christ has dictated in His Word. And so here we have the, the second letter, which shows us that the church had listened. The church had been convicted of her worldliness and her open-mindedness towards sin. And the church had done as Paul had instructed 
and had put this one out of the church. Now in um, in verse 23 of chapter 1, Paul now is explaining why he did not come as soon as some had thought he would. In verse 23, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul's basically saying, I was giving you a season to show repentance. I wrote this letter to you to give you that opportunity so that when I come, it won't be to deal with that issue, but rather to rejoice with you over your repentance. That's what I was praying for in this delay. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Now that's an amazing statement. Paul here, he's grieved over these people. They're his spiritual children in the faith. He had shared the gospel with them. They had professed their faith in Christ, and this church had been formed. And then when we read 1 Corinthians... What a sad account of all the weakness and the struggle and the worldliness that had taken root in their midst. And Paul here says, though, uh, he, he wrote that letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but in hope and faith that God would show that every single one, to a person, every one of them, were truly the children of God. Uh, for I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So here Paul has heard, not only had the church responded to his call, you, you have to stir yourself and deal with the sin in your midst. You can't tolerate this worldly wickedness. They had put this one out of the church. Well, now apparently they are uh, going even beyond what Paul was uh, looking for in them uh, they are full of zeal you know you 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 brought all this trouble upon us uh, we we were too lenient but we're not going to make that mistake again you grieved our beloved apostle Paul and we're we're not going to forget and here this man is um, also showing the proof of Paul's confidence that he also has been convicted by the Holy Spirit and is seeking to be restored. He, uh, Paul in, in verse 5 is saying, this, this isn't a matter of offense to me or pain to me. Um, don't, don't be zealous or jealous on my behalf as though he, he has to make some atonement to me for this sin, but rather... You should turn and comfort him and forgive him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. <clears throat> so the, the joyful aspect of this, as back to the language of this chapter and paragraph in our confession, not only are the keys to be used in shutting out those who are hardened in their sin, refusing repentance, but even that is done in hope 
in the Lord Jesus in hope and his mercy. And the Lord Jesus has given in the keys of the kingdom, again, the, the authority and responsibility to the officers of the church, not only to shut out those who are refusing to repent, but then to open that door again to one who does repent and show the fruit of repentance that they might be restored again. In other words, it's not uh, an act of finality, but as we, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5 just last week, and we will again in a moment, uh, it is that they might be turned over to Satan, that their soul might be delivered, that they may be awakened to the reality that there are consequences to sin. You can't have both. You can't have joyful, peaceful, loving fellowship with God and his people and hold on to a sin that you love in the sinfulness of your heart and refuse to give it up. You must love Jesus first and declare a war, a holy war upon the sin of your life. And so the officers of the church are called upon to lead God's people in seeking after that godliness, that holiness, that walk with the Lord. And in, their, in, in those cases when sin is initially uh, not repented of, as we read in Matthew 18, there are all of these opportunities where repentance is being sought. You're going to that brother privately and individually, and you're pleading with them, please don't forget who you belong to. I love you. I have been offended by this sin, but I would love for us both to put it behind us, covered in the blood of Jesus. Won't you please repent? I would love to forgive you, and I would love to be restored in our relationship because, again, it's not just a relationship between man and man, but between both of us and the Lord Jesus. That's what's at stake. And then bringing others who, again, they're not there to uh, heap scorn and disdain on a person. They're there just simply to join in calling them to repent, to establish whatever facts might be in question and to seek the repentance of the sinner. And then, if that fails, going to the elders of the church and seeking the same thing. And even if that fails, as Paul illustrates, putting a person outside the fellowship of the church is not done in lofty pride or lightly, but with grief and sorrow and also hope and prayer that God would show his covenant mercies to be stronger and more dirt enduring than their sin and rebellion that he would even yet save them and that was the case here in Corinth even that man who had been living with his stepmother in just the hardness of heart and a whole church had been carried along with this sin even he God brings great conviction upon him and he uses the the severe discipline, admittedly severe, to, to, to look at someone and say, I can't have fellowship with you. I can't have peace with you. I can't have um, an easy, open relationship as we've had until you have restored your relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's what is standing between us now. And it's so significant and important that uh, it's going to totally change our relationship until that has been resolved. And that's what the church as a whole says to a person who has been put outside, as, as Jesus described it in those Old Testament terms. They are becoming to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, not the welcome guests of your home. They are viewed as being enemies of God, and they're to be prayed for and, and sought after through the gospel, uh, but not encouraged any longer in, in their sin. So that is the, what, what the keys of the kingdom is a reference to. Keys are, are used, they're implements of opening and shutting. They are opening and shutting uh, that kingdom in terms of every individual's 
standing with the Lord Jesus, their response to the gospel. That they have no power to shut out of the Lord Jesus' kingdom someone who is repenting of their sin, looking to Jesus by faith. They have no authority to do that. And in cases in church history where church officers or governments have endeavored to do that or claim they had done that, well, you can be comforted that the Lord Jesus always occupies his place as the king and head of the church. He is the great shepherd. And you have cases like Martin Luther, um, who, for his standing for the truth of the gospel, he was excommunicated from the church of his day. Uh, that did not put him outside of right relationship with God because that was a sinful abuse of church authority because it didn't follow in submission to the scriptures and the will of Christ. Of course, as we just read, the contrary is true. It, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a, of no consequence when we hear of officers having to make a decision like this uh, when they are men who who have shown a submission to the Lord a humble seeking after his will in the scriptures and they're doing this with grief and sorrow it should be a very sobering thing to to reckon with um, is this in fact not a true reflection of how the Lord Jesus is is dealing with this individual. Now, the third paragraph follows on to this in terms of the necessity or use of church censures in the life of the church. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Now, we, um, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 5 referenced, and we will read those verses again because several of these purposes or uses, the need for church censures, are illustrated there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. No, it, it is sometimes uh, presented as though church censures or, or church discipline as another term for this is, is just harsh and unkind and such, such thoughts as that. But when you, when you recognize the alternative to that, you see even, even in that individual's case, where's the kindness in encouraging them on in believing a lie? that they can be right with God and have peace with Him and all the blessings of being a child of God intact and also reject the authority of God in their life. That, that is a lie, and it will prove to their own sorrow if they continue on in such, in such a lie. Uh, it also is destructive to the church as as the confession makes reference, and as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 5 also, this reference to the leaven that would infect the lump, or as Hebrews describes it, the root of bitterness by which many may become defiled. When sin is allowed to, to grow unchecked and nothing is done in response to it, it has a, a corrupting influence and it would lead many others down a similar path. And it also is such a dishonor to the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's something that, that we should be painfully aware of in our day and time. When you, when you ask people, well, you know, what's your experience with the church, or what's your understanding? You know, if I ask you about uh, the church, what would you describe to me? 
And sadly, there, there are peop- there's just a, a host of negative examples of church um, function in our day and time, which give not an excuse for sin, certainly, but they give occasion for those who are not uh, lovers of the Lord Jesus to uh, bring dishonor upon his name. Sad to see uh, such, such a testimony in our day and time. And then also that this matter of the wrath of God against sin, not only is it true that sin calls for discipline of a father and persisted sin, especially by those who are apart from the Lord Jesus, of course, we know that the wrath of God comes upon sin, but it is sometimes forgotten what Peter warns, that judgment begins where? The household of God. That the, the wrath of God against sin, not only do we not have a pass on that within his church, but if anything, there is this higher standard uh, of enforcement to whom much is given, much is required, and that is certainly true within the church. And so if we, as, as Paul was warning the church in Corinth, if we would join in in treating sin as a matter of no consequence or we're open-minded, we're able to uh, be tolerant, we're able to do what God says uh, cannot be done, uh, then we are just inviting the wrath of God upon ourselves. And so let's look at these scripture references. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read this um, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Even though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. In terms of this matter of the leaven working its way through the lump, Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, the example, the example we set for one another does have an influence and an encouragement toward whatever it is we're doing. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, we have a reference that we've already looked at in terms of these who are considered unclean or outside of the people of God. How is it that we should um, obey this verse? Well, rather than just looking to our own personal assessments in this, 
as we've seen, the officers of the church are supposed to be leading and calling all of God's people and themselves first and foremost to a life of godly obedience to the Lord Jesus. And when that has failed to be the case, when those calls are unheeded, uh, the end of the line in that is that an individual is to be put outside the church. And our confession, the assembly that wrote it, references this verse. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That this, this distinction between how you confront someone who is a brother and how you confront or should you confront one that is just completely given over to uncleanness and unbelief uh, that is something that plays into this matter of the government of the church and church discipline. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20, we have another reference in the apostle Paul's writings to both the activity or the action by which individual men have been put outside of the church because of persistent sin and also a renewed expression of the hope and the confidence that Paul had that in showing the consequences of sin, the prayer would be that they would be awakened to the danger of sin and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. In, in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so here we have the Apostle Paul's warning to Timothy, in this case, to be careful to keep a good conscience because some have rejected this. And if you're not careful to keep a good conscience, that is to keep things right in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit your heart completely to Him, to repent of your sins as you become aware of them, if you don't do that, you can make shipwreck of your faith. That just grows into greater and greater expressions of sin and leads to such a case as he describes with Hymenaeus and Alexander. They had gone so far. They had lost their credibility as believers in Jesus. They had made shipwreck of their profession of faith. And... The, the Apostle Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan that they might, may learn not to blaspheme. So again, this exercise of the authority of church government in consistent application of the Word of God being exemplified in the Apostle Paul. He had handed them over, another reference as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that they may learn not to blaspheme. And you can be assured that Hymenaeus and Alexander, when they first began to uh, let things go in terms of their conscience, their first act was not blaspheming God in heaven. But that was the shocking outcome of this slide into sin, their failure to maintain a good conscience. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We looked at these verses in the chapter dealing with the Lord's Supper. Notice there again this, this issue of judgment and sin. That would be the theme that we're looking to, that we have the opportunity and responsibility even to judge sin in ourselves as we are coming to the Lord's table, we're to view our sin as, as against God and judge it as worthy of God's judgment and seek the forgiveness and the cleansing in the blood of Jesus. And when we fail to do that, then the Lord himself will deal with us in discipline. 
and even as we read in verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, we're getting close on time, so we'll actually pick up there next week because we want to also look at Jude, verse 23, when we read these verses. So let's close with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll pick up there next week. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your word. We thank you that yours is the kingdom and the power and the authority forever. And we know, Lord, that there is no authority within your church separate from or contrary to the word you have given in your holy scriptures. We thank you for that. We thank you that we have protection against the tyranny of men over men. And we pray, Lord, for the officers of this church and the other expressions of your church throughout the world. We pray that there would be a deep humility, uh, submission, true submission of the heart to your word and the wisdom that your spirit alone can give in uh, applying and knowing and discerning that, that will to each situation that arises. Lord, we pray that you would renew your call to all of us this day to be holy as you are holy and that you would come by your presence and give us the grace and the help we need to pursue that calling. Oh, Lord, please deliver us from the sin that so easily entangles us. Please help us, Lord, to be hating and forsaking our sin every day that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and help us to encourage one another, exhorting one another every day, as long as it's called today, that we would not uh, fall away. Oh, Lord, please bless in the cases of those who have been put outside the church, even in, in our own experience. We pray that you would restore them, make true the, the hope and the promise of your word that we pray for, that you would show that your grace is greater than our sin and the case of those who have wandered away. We pray that you would go after them and reclaim them and bring them back. And bless us now as we gather with your people here to worship you. We pray that our hearts would be lifted up to you in, in love and joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.